Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12, um, beginning with verse 18. Let me just say this, too. For those that may be visiting with us, uh, Mark said that there's restrooms back this way. There's also sort of a like a cry room on the other side of this wall, or if you just need to stretch your legs or something like that, the service is piped into that room as well. And you can actually get there without being seen on the live stream. So you're good. <laughs> so I just want to let you know that. But let's, uh, let's give attention to God's word this morning. Um, and Sadducees came to him, that is to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living, you are quite wrong. My sins are reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty and great and powerful God, we thank you, Lord, so much that you are so great that you can raise the dead to life. Lord, we know that you can do the same with the spiritual dead as well. And Lord, even with those that are struggling, and so we pray this morning, oh God, that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of who you are and to see your word and, and how that word applies to our lives this morning. Lord, if nothing else, just in how... It might fuel the fires of our love and our worship for you to glorify and to exalt your name. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, in many ways, the world in which we live is a mess right now. Um, if you haven't noticed, I mean, just look at the economy and all the inflation that we're experiencing and, and the higher prices for everything. You're probably thinking about gas, and that's true. Gas is very high, but so is everything else. And even when you go to the store, there's uh, not quite the selection that there used to be. Sometimes my wife comes home and I'm like, why did you buy that? And she's like, that's the only thing they had. And so that's what we had to get. It's not just the economy. I mean, even increased violence, you know. Uh, and it's not just shootings that we see, but also the riots of the last couple of years across our country in various states as people disagreed with one another. Rather than talking it out, they, they actually resorted to physical violence. And even in the church, brothers and sisters, the church, the church, the church, the 
Paul calls the pillar and buttress of truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. And yet, we see, even in the church, denominations that are succumbing to cultural issues of the day and bringing into the church that which is dishonoring to the Lord. Even our own denomination, the, the PCA, is battling over side B homosexuality and, and wrestling with what that looks like and what it means to apply the truth of God's word to that. And so you see in the church, sort of in America at least, a, a decline in attendance. Many young people buying into the lies of the world and even leaving the church. And so the world's a mess. Now you could be here this morning and say, well, thank you, Pastor Rick. I feel very encouraged and edified by that sermon so far. But you know, we are not a people without hope, brothers and sisters. We have hope in spite of what we see in the world and the things that are going on. We have hope. As a matter of fact, I would even say, even with everything going on and the church waning, and even in the current decline in the church, while it may not seem like it, we live in a day of great opportunity. Because God's people are being challenged by the Lord Himself to abandon the man-focused religiosity of our recent past, and instead to walk as true disciples of Jesus Christ. God is dealing with with his church. And I hear more and more Christians, I hear more and more trends of people who are talking about things like humility, who are, who are teaching on the necessity of prayer, of trusting God, of walking in holiness and righteousness and dependence upon the Lord. The Lord is dealing with his church, brothers and sisters. He's dealing with the worldliness that, that has too often permeated the church. And I really believe that the Lord is bringing the church in America down low so that Christ might be exalted. You know, I really believe that we are really at the beginnings. As we, if we look ahead, I think the Lord is posturing us as the American church for times of revival. But that time of revival is only going to come as he brings the church lower and lower and lower to trust in him. And so, I hope you're encouraged this morning. You know, one thing about all of this that's very true is that the more clearly that Jesus is proclaimed and glorified, the more concentrated and intense Satan's opposition will be against the church. Let me say that again. The more clearly that Jesus is proclaimed and glorified, the more concentrated and intense Satan's opposition will be against the church sort of reminds me of an illustration that I learned in my evangelism explosion training where if you share the gospel with someone and they come to faith in Jesus Christ, you can say, hey, look, your life is going to change and it's going to change in a glorious way as the Lord has made you a new creature in Christ. But you also need to understand that there's an enemy and his name is Satan and he wants to see you fall. And so we would use this illustration. We'd say it's sort of like a basketball team. Okay? No one on a basketball team guards the people on the bench. They're part of the basketball team, but nobody's guarding them because they're sitting on the bench. But once you get in the game, boy, you got somebody right there in your face that's, that's seeking to, to uh, see you fail. And it's the same way as a Christian. Right? You know, before you become a believer, you're just there. Satan's not really messing with you because he has you. But once you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he's right there. So, in many ways, it should not surprise us that Satan opposes us the more seriously that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So just keep that in mind. You know, as you grow in holiness and, and righteousness, as the Holy Spirit is working in you, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, my life is getting so much harder, you know, you can almost praise the Lord for that. That means you're in the game. And that the Lord is using you in a mighty and a great way. Well, uh, we see that kind of opposition here in our text today in Mark's Gospel as the Sanhedrin come against Jesus. We Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Sanhedrin were the 70 rulers over the, the nation of Israel, the religious leaders. And so they begin to oppose Jesus. And first of all, we have the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders who were like a representative of the Sanhedrin who come and they question Jesus on his authority. What's the basis on which you do these things? And Christ no sooner deals with them and addresses them and causes them to sort of run away with their tails between their legs than the Pharisees and the Herodians show up. And they start asking Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar and trying to, to catch him in a trap. And of course, Jesus deals with them too. And so then, now in our text today, we see the Sadducees who come to Jesus to challenge him about the resurrection. And guess what? It's not over with. Uh, next time we look at Mark again, which will be in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll see also that the scribes will take a crack at Jesus to see where they can get. You see, they're all attempting to get the Lord to incriminate himself. They're, they're bombarding him with questions, and not just any old questions, but questions that would be uh, like a trap to, to catch him in his own words and to discredit him. And the whole time that they're doing this, Mark eleven eighteen tells us that behind the scenes they're plotting on how they can kill Jesus. So they are very hostile. I mean, the conflict between Jesus and the Sanhedrin is now fully out in the open. Jesus has come and he has proclaimed, I am the Messiah, and now all the gloves are off. And they are coming against him. But every time these men confront Jesus, Jesus turns the tables on them. He turns the tables on them. You've got to love it. And so anyway, so the Sadducees come and they try their hand at Jesus. They, they are a, a very sophisticated, very intellectual group. And so they use the resurrection to try and to trap Jesus and thus discredit him. And so this morning we're going to look at the resurrection. And I want to, I want to share three points with you about the resurrection this morning. Uh, for us. First of all, we're going to look at the resistance to the resurrection, the resistance to the resurrection, then the reason for the resurrection, and the reality of the resurrection. So the resistance to the resurrection, the reason for the resurrection, and the reality of the resurrection. First of all, the resistance. The Sadducees come. Uh, they resist the resurrection. Let me tell you a little bit about the Sadducees. They were thought to be the aristocratic Jewish religious political party, sort of a, a mixture of politics and, and religion, which consisted of some of the leading families in Jerusalem. So they were sort of the, the blue bloods of, of Jerusalem. And they wanted to uh, really keep, sort of appease the Romans because they wanted to maintain their high standing in society. And so they were loosely affiliated and allied with Herod uh, so they liked the Herodians, okay? They, they really very much liked them. And they, they really were against any sense of returning to a Davidic, a David, uh, Davidic uh, monarchy or kingdom. They really thought Herod ought to be in power. Uh, as far as theologically, they were sort of the theological liberals of the day. They were very much deists. They believed that God existed, that he caused all things, but he really had nothing to do with his creation. So 
they questioned the supernatural elements of biblical faith. You know, they didn't believe, they denied, as a matter of fact, the resurrection, spirits, angels, life after death, there were no rewards, there was no judgment. When you died, you just ceased to exist. So, I mean, think about that of the liberals of our day. If you talk about the virgin birth or, or things like that, they'll say, oh, I don't believe that, or miracles. They just want to explain that away. It was a lot the same way with the Sadducees. And, and so they, uh, they, they came down on those positions. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe the Bible, but they didn't believe the entire Old Testament. They only believed portions of it. They felt like Moses was one who spoke with authority. So they actually only uh, bought into the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy was their scripture. So kids, think about this. That meant for them, they didn't believe the Psalms were part of the Bible. They didn't believe that the prophets were part of the Bible. They didn't think the history books were part of the Bible. So David and Goliath, and all that, that was just made up in, in their minds. They didn't see that. So that's sort of who these Sadducees are. And they come to Jesus, and, and it's really interesting as you look at the strategy that they used with him. They argued on the ground of Jesus' belief, because Jesus did espouse that the resurrection is true and so they're trying to show that jesus teaching on the resurrection was absurd and they were trying to show that jesus can't hold on to his beliefs in the resurrection without looking silly and so that's why uh, they tell this story it almost sounds like a parable and now you have to understand a little bit about what is going on here with this story uh, it is based on the concept of the Leverite law uh, that comes from Deuteronomy 25, verses 10, or excuse me, 25, 5 through 10, but especially verses 5 and 6, okay? And, and that word Leverite comes from the Latin, Levir, or Levir, excuse me, L-E-V-I-R, which means husband's brother, okay? And it was one of the commands of Moses. So it fell within the context of their scripture, okay? And it had to do with the inheritance of the land. In those days, the land inheritance was very important to the Jews because that was an inheritance that God had given to them. And so he had said to each tribe, this is your land, this is your land, and this is your land. And so that had to be very carefully guarded, and that land had to be kept within that tribe. And so the Levite law said that if a man died before he had given birth to a child, to an heir that he could pass that land on to, then his brother was to marry his wife, and the brother was to bear a child on behalf of his deceased brother, and the child born to the, in this new marriage would legally represent the deceased brother, and in terms of inheritance and name. So kids, what that means is this, okay? Imagine if you would, if your dad died, then what that would mean is one of your uncles would marry your mom. Now, you wouldn't be here because they didn't have any kids, okay? But just for the sake to help you to understand this, they would marry your mom, and, they, and hopefully they would have a child. And if they did, that might be you. But you wouldn't be your uncle's child. You would be your dead dad's child. Okay? That's, I know that sounds sick and messed up. Okay? But the purpose of that was to keep a family from dying out, from having their name die out. But it also was to keep the family wealth intact, to keep the land within the tribes of Israel. So it wasn't 
you know, there wasn't intermarrying with the, the Gentiles or, or others. And so that's sort of the idea behind this story, just to help make sense in our modern context. And so the Sadducees say in verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. So you have to understand that the Sadducees weren't just, you know, making up some far-fetched what-if situation that might sound like it's morally questionable with a woman marrying, you know, having seven husbands and all that kind of stuff. Now, this is part of God's law requirement for his people. So they go on and they tell this story. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife and, and died without any children. Then the second brother took her, and he also died with no children. And the same thing happened with brothers three, four, five, six, and seven, and, and still no children. And finally, the woman dies. And so they said, since all these men were legitimately married to her, according to God's word in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? Well, their question was framed on the pharisaical and rabbinical assumption that the world that we live in is just an extension or continuation of the life that we have here on earth. That everything is going to be the same as it is here on earth. It's just that things will more be more glorious in the afterlife, okay, which Jesus is going to address here in a minute. But if you look at the Sadducees' logic here, it appears to be an attempt to reductio ad absurdum okay they're trying to to argue by way of the absurdity that the resurrection can't be true because it would cause all kinds of problems in the afterlife and so they're they're really hoping that you know by trying to make this spiritual truth look ridiculous by interpreting it with the grossest of literalism that they really would make uh, Jesus position sort of a laughing stock he would be sort of laughed out of court. It's like, who would believe in the resurrection? Because if the resurrection were true, it would cause all these problems. Well, Jesus answers them. And that brings us to the reason for the resurrection. Jesus' response to them at first uh, is done by showing them. He said, you guys are wrong. He said, you're wrong. In verse 24, he said, is this not the reason you're wrong? In verse 27, at the very end, he even repeats this again. He said, you are quite wrong. As a matter of fact, it sort of literally means you're way off base. You think you're so smart. You think you're so intelligent. But I'm sorry, guys. You're sort of letting your ignorance show here because you don't really see things as clearly as you want to. There really is no concern about who the woman would be married to because none of us will be married when we are raised from the dead. Marriage is a lifelong commitment, but it's not an eternal commitment, is what Jesus is saying here. And so then he tells them why they're wrong. Jesus turns to make a case to them for the resurrection. And, and he meets them where they're at. He takes them back to Scripture. And there's any number of places in the Old Testament that talks about the resurrection. Uh, but those places are, are not in the first five books of Moses. And so rather than Jesus turning to those texts and saying, look, this is what the Bible says, and then debating with them about what Scripture really is, he goes, okay, you guys want to stick with Moses? I'll go with Moses. And he takes them back to Exodus chapter 3, to, to God speaking to Moses in the burning bush. And that's what we see in verse 26. 
Uh, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am, not I was, not past tense, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Because they were all dead by now. And so if, if there was no resurrection, if there was no life after life, then God should have said, I was. But instead, he says, I am. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist. And Jesus even makes reference to that in the New Testament as well. But, but let's just look at that closely. Because if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, as the Sadducees believed, then God's promise to them was limited to the duration of their earthly life, which makes God's promises limited and finite and unfulfilled. Because death is, uh, uh, eliminates or gets rid of those promises. However, God cannot be bound or limited even by death itself. You see, God is not just God to his people. The Bible describes him as their God. There is a, a relationship with God. God has established a relationship with his people. And the, the, the terminology that the Bible uses for that is covenant. That God has made a covenant with his people. He's in a, a covenant is an agreement between, in the simplest form, between two or more people. And God has made that. And so the call of God, and what I mean by the call of God is his effectual call. And if you're like, Pastor Rick, that really doesn't help me any more than just telling me it's a call. Okay, well then look at Shorter Catechism, question number 31. Okay, it describes what that effectual call is. The New Testament might refer to that as being born again. When God calls us in such a way that we are regenerate, okay, uh, he establishes a relationship between us and him. And, and that's why the Bible can talk about uh, how nothing can keep us from God and his love. Nothing can destroy that relationship. If you would, look at John chapter 10. Just a couple books over. John 10 and verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now that word know there is gnosko, which is the Greek word that talks about not just knowing someone intellectually, but knowing them relationally. Like Adam knew his wife Eve, okay, intimately, okay? God knows us relationally. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then skip down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's nothing that can interrupt that relationship that, that we have with God once He establishes that relationship. Uh, let me uh, read from Romans chapter 8, verse 38, another very familiar passage. Romans 8, 38, that talks about the love of God. 
and, and we read in Romans, for I am sure, not I'm kind of sure, not that I'm mostly sure. Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, or love of God, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even death cannot separate us from God's love and the promises that he gives to us. And so, you know, Jesus uses this argument to help the Pharisees to see, you guys don't see as clearly as you think you do. And see, he says that their problem is really twofold. Look at verse 24. He goes, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, they don't know the scriptures as well as they think they do. Their, their lack of knowledge of the scriptures is seen in a number of ways as Jesus is talking to them. First, their reference to the Levite law showed how they misinterpreted uh, the Deuteronomy's passage in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. They thought it presented a dilemma for a marriage beyond life, and yet the very passage that they're quoting really shows the opposite of what they're trying to prove. You see, Moses was talking about what to do when a husband died. Okay, the wife was to be taken by the brother. Okay, but that actually would have been unlawful if the husband had not died. If the brother said, oh, you're married to this woman? I want her as my woman too. Or as my wife, excuse me, my woman. That's a, <laughs> as my wife, I want her as my wife. You know, uh, actually according to Leviticus 18.16, that was sin. You were not to uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. And so that would have been sin. But because the first husband had died, they're no longer married. And so she's free to marry whoever. So the brother can then come in and he can marry her. And so the Sadducees didn't even realize that by raising this argument, they were actually arguing against their very point. That when this woman gets to, to heaven, it's not that she has seven husbands. She actually has no husbands. Because when the last husband died, she was free from that. Secondly, their lack of knowledge of the scripture was also seen uh, by Jesus' reference to the burning bush. Because Jesus made a case for the resurrection from this Exodus 3 passage that, that they did not understand. And, uh, and so obviously they hadn't known the scriptures as well as they thought they did. And Jesus showed them that they had a lack of understanding. The third thing I think we see, and I, I don't want to push this too far... But Jesus talks about how when we get to heaven, we'll be like the angels, okay? So Jesus is acknowledging the, the existence of angels. Um, but the, the Sadducees actually argued that there were no such things as angels. Even though the Torah, their scripture that they would have argued from, actually talks over and over and over about the existence of angels. And so you see there's a number of ways where these Pharisees really did not understand the scripture as well as they did, even though they felt like they had a pretty good handle on it. And not only that, but Jesus points out, and you do not understand the power of God. They didn't believe that God's power included the resurrection. They had limited God's power in their minds. They had limited God's relationship with them to just their life in this world. 
They didn't think about the fact that God would have a relationship with them otherwise. While surely God's power is seen not only in this world, but also God's power has been seen since eternity past, present, and future. Now, brothers and sisters, as we consider this this morning, there's really a challenge for us, too. I, I would not consider you guys liberals at all, <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, but even for those that are Bible-believing Christians, we need to be challenged uh, for us. Do we know the Word of God? Do we know it? Do we, do we treasure it? Is, is it like the psalmist in Psalm 19 where he talks about, it is a delight to my soul. It's like honey to my lips. That we hunger and we thirst after God's Word. Or are we simply satisfied with what we know, thinking that we know God's Word well enough, like the Sadducees did? Well, even if we know God's Word, I think the second way this challenges us is by asking the questions, do we believe God has the power to keep His Word? Do we just know God's Word intellectually, or do we stand on the promises of God? Do we actually put the weight of the decisions of our lives upon the Word of God? If we say, God's Word has said this, and I can take this to the bank, I can count on it. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I don't have to just... You know, ponder and think, oh God, how am I going to do this? i got to fix this. i got to take care of this problem in my life. Actually, I can just sort of step back and say, God, you promised this. Help me to walk in obedience to that promise. Amen. Is that where we're at? So I think there's ways that we could be challenged here. The final thing that we see is the reality of the resurrection. And I want to sort of use this just as a way to sort of draw together some applications for us this morning. I think the first thing that we see as we look at this text is that heaven is different than earth. Okay, it's not exactly the same. So the Pharisees, the rabbinical teaching taught that the earth, the, the life that we live here on this earth will be the same life that we live in heaven. It's just sort of a, an extension. We cross over to be more glorious and stuff. But, but Jesus affirms the nature of relationships we now enjoy on earth don't necessarily continue into heaven. And particularly regarding marriage and procreation and things like that, which really causes a problem, if you think about it, for Mormons and for Islamic friends, right? Because they are thinking they're going to get to heaven and they're going to have brides, they're going to have women, that you know, many wives, you know. But the Bible says, no, that's not the case at all. And uh, that's not what it looks like in the afterlife. According to Jesus, the resurrection involves our glorification and therefore the complete transformation of our earthly life as we presently know it. So, to put it very simply, life in heaven is not the same as life on earth. Uh, everything is, is transformed. Now, it's, it's not, as we, as we think about these things, it's, it's not as though we were being deprived of something in heaven that we love here on earth, our, our, our spouse, our family, sexuality, those kind of things. Jesus points that what we experience here on earth will be adapted to the eternal state so that we can exist in the presence of God. And, and so in that sense, we are somewhat like the angels. Uh, in other words, the resurrection, in the resurrection, God transforms human nature, not only glorifying it, but removing any hint of sin. 
you know, and uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of that transformation from the natural to the heavenly. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Uh, Mark 12, 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So we see in this passage that marriage is temporary. It's till death does us part, right? Uh, marriage is something between a man and a woman in this present age. It's not for all eternity. Now, some of you, that might make you sad. And in some ways, I'd be sort of glad if that's the case. It means you have a good marriage, probably. You know, I know there are plenty of people here who have had bad marriages and who have even tasted, had the horrible taste of divorce. Many who have experienced the perversion of marriage because of sin in their relationship with their spouse. I understand that, that there are, are oftentimes very difficult marriages, but there are many who have tasted the good side of marriage, the sweet fellowship of, of intimacy between a man and a woman. And, and if we have tasted something of that goodness of earthly marriages, then we can be tempted to feel sad to think, what? I won't be married to my wife or I won't be married to my husband. And yet, Scripture assures us that heaven will be far greater than we can imagine. It promises that our resurrection life will be far more wonderful than anything that we have experienced on earth. So if your marriage is great, just imagine what it's going to be like in heaven, right? Now, we know the Scriptures describe God's people as the bride of Christ. You know, Paul uses that reference in many places. Second. Corinthians 11.2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to the one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In Ephesians, Paul talks about how Christ himself is preparing his church as his bride to be presented to him when he returns. Do you ever think of yourself that way? Do you ever think of yourself as a bride waiting to get married? I mean, John describes in the book of Revelation the church as the bride of Christ and the promises, the coming of the great marriage supper of the Lamb for God's people at the resurrection. Do you understand what the scripture is promising us? Something even greater than our human marriages. It might be based upon, it might, our marriages may be a mere shadow of it, but this is something much greater. And, and right now, as we await his return he is preparing us for that great wedding not through external beauty treatments or or with some earthly gown but but through the robe of his righteousness and the transforming of the holy spirit in our lives he's getting us ready brothers and sisters he's getting us ready the Spirit that makes us more and more righteous like Christ. The Spirit that sanctifies us and purifies us from all sin. And, and uh, so we're looking forward to that day. Now when did this marriage happen? Well, on the day of the resurrection. On the, way, the day that Jesus comes back. And we need to look forward to that day with great anticipation. Saints of God, let us indeed be in preparation for this great wedding of Christ and His church. Let's prepare for it. And you might say, well, how do I prepare for it? Well, one general way is to keep from the problems that the Sadducees had, okay? Jesus told them that they didn't know his word or the, the power 
that God has. And as a result of that, they were in error. And so by their lack of knowledge and, and faith in God, they ended up in error. And we must not fall into the same trap as they did. We need to strive to know God's word better. Let us know his power better. I mean, I just think about young couples that are engaged or courting or whatever you want to call it, okay? And they're dating and, and, and they're getting to know one another better. They spend all kinds of time together and they're asking each other questions. How does your family do this? What do you think about this? How many kids do you want to have? And they're just like bombarding each other with questions. It's like they just love being together. Okay, and, and it's like as, as we are preparing to, to be married to our groom, do we have the same anticipation to know him, to know him not just in a general sense, but to know him intimately? Don't expect God to keep you from error if you stay away from the truth of God's word. And, and don't expect to be able to guide others to the truth if you stay close to error. No. We can't do that. Let us embrace the truth. Let us embrace the truth of God's word and his will. And it's that very word that tells us of God's power. It tells us of his power to resurrect the dead. And his plan to resurrect the dead. It tells us of God's plan to save us through faith in Jesus Christ. So that when the resurrection does happen. We will be raised to eternal life. And not to eternal damnation. That should make people, God's people say amen, right? We should be excited about that. You see, scriptures say that resurrection is a reality for all, for everyone. Everyone will be resurrected. But it is only a good thing for those who belong to Jesus Christ. For all others will be cast into to hell. But those who will be united together with him for his bride for all eternity will see it as a glorious thing. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him as your Savior and your Lord. Now, are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you hearing this? Everybody in heaven will be married. So if you're here today and you're single, prepare to meet your husband. Right? Court him. Get to know him. Spend time with him. Grow in your love for him. Because one day you will be in that intimate relationship seeing him face to face. For those who are married, just because your marriage is, is temporary, one, doesn't mean your marriage is insignificant. So I don't want you to go home and say, hey, I'm sorry, uh, husband. I don't have time for you anymore. I got to get ready for Jesus. Or, you know, wife, I'm sorry, you're out. You know, Jesus is my all. That, that's not, just because it's temporary doesn't mean it's, it's not legitimate or important. Our earthly marriages are so important because they reflect the relationship between Christ and His church. They are a witness to the world for the world to see what Jesus Christ is like and what His love is like. And so we must cultivate uh, through, uh, um, through time and effort that we spend with our spouse to love them more. But as you do that, realize that the heavenly marriage which you have been called for and prepare for that you know if you want to love your wife love Jesus more spend time with Jesus more you want to love your husband you want to be his helpmate spend time with Jesus and you will be a better helpmate use the growth of your earthly marriage to remind you to be growing 
in your heavenly marriage. And so brothers and sisters, let us be excited about this reality. As excited as a bride is on the night before her wedding. She's probably nervous, but she's also very excited. And let us be excited for the Lord's return at the resurrection. And, and as you prepare for this great heavenly marriage, be assured that it is actually Christ preparing you. Even though Jesus isn't physically with us here, know that he is preparing us. Did not Jesus say, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let us be ready for that. Let us be ready for the time when Jesus said, it's time for you to come home. Whatever circumstance that might be. That might be Jesus' return. It might be Jesus' call, though, to you to maybe you go to the doctor and you find out you have cancer. And it's stage four, and most likely you're going to be meeting Jesus sooner than later. What's your attitude towards that? Is your attitude one of rejoicing? That I get to be in the presence of my beloved? Or is it like, Lord, why are you cutting my life so short here upon this earth? I think, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Sometimes when our kids were little, we would go over to someone's house and they'd be playing with our kids and we'd get ready to leave. And they'd say, I'd say, okay guys, time to leave. And they go, oh, we don't want to leave. We want to stay. You know, my wife and I are thinking, fine, you can stay. You can have them. No, that's not what we're saying. But you know, you just, they're just like, oh, so disappointed. But could you imagine if you said to your spouse, honey, I think it's time for us to go. And they're like, oh, I don't want to go. I want to stay here with these people. I don't like you that much. No, they wouldn't say that, but, you know, that's sort of what implied. But I think, you know, can we not sometimes have that attitude with Jesus? That when he calls us home, whenever that may be, and especially if he does that earlier than we anticipate, are we excited or are we like that spouse that says, Oh, no, I'd rather stay here on this earth a little bit longer. I'm having too good of a time. Now, I know that sounds stupid. It sounds sort of ridiculous. But have you not heard people like that? Maybe you've wrestled with that yourself. And you find that your life is too tied to the things of this world. You see, that our hope is in the resurrection. That is what makes the resurrection so wonderful. That's why the resurrection will be more wonderful than anything that we experience in this life because we will go to be with Jesus. And if we truly love him, we will love him even here upon this earth as we will prepare for him. And so for those who have experienced the goodness and the sweetness of earthly marriage, know that it is but a foretaste of what you're going to experience in eternity. And for those who have not experienced uh, earthly marriage, this is a call uh, for you to long for the return of Jesus. Where anything that your heart has longed for here and now and not been fulfilled will be fulfilled and satisfied with joy with the Lord forevermore. For all of us, all of our godly hopes and dreams and longings will be fully met in Jesus Christ because we will love Him uh, purely and without sin. As one person said, um, you know, they said, no wonder the Sadducees 
were called sad, you see. <laughs> you know, I, have you heard that? You know, the, fair, the Pharisees, that's how I was taught as a little kid. You know, the Pharisees, they were fair, you see. The Sadducees, they were sad, you see. You know, that kind of thing. But if you think about them, in all seriousness, there, there may be those that are here today or watching via the live stream who don't know the Lord. And they're like the Sadducees. They're sad. Because, you know, they are living for this moment. They are living for this world. Which explains why so many people's focus is on wealth and power. You know, for those that don't know Jesus Christ, this world is as good as it's ever going to get. Because in eternity is hell forever. And suffering and separation from God. And so this is as good as it gets. It also explains why those that don't know Christ, of uh, their impatience with the masses and, and their rudeness. They don't have time for the lifelong work of developing patience and virtues because they're not looking for the afterlife. They're trying to live for now. And there's definitely no payoff for them in eternity. And so you can really sort of understand why people in this world are so sad and so difficult. And so, one, I hope that it will give you as Christians patience with those that don't know Jesus. And rather than getting upset with them when they cut you off in traffic and all that kind of stuff, pray for them that they may come to know Jesus. And if you are that person that you don't know Jesus, and so you are really living for the moment, I want you to know that Jesus is calling you to come to Him today. That you don't have to live your life for yourself. That He has created you for you to worship and to trust and to rest in Him and know Him. And so He calls you to, to acknowledge your sin against Him and to repent of that sin. To, to believe that He truly can forgive you and He will give you this eternal life. If you want to know more about that, contact me. You can do that through our website or whatever if you're watching online. Or if you're here, I'd love to talk with you that you can know Jesus. He is a glorious Savior. And we look forward, do we not, brothers and sisters, to the resurrection when we will be the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and just take a few moments to, to meditate upon the word that we've heard preached this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the good news of the resurrection. Oh, to think that one day, as much as we might appreciate the blessings that you give us here upon this earth, that we can look forward to the greatest blessing 
of knowing you face to face, to be intimate with you and know you in a way that we don't know yet. Oh God, I pray that you would just prepare us, get us ready for that day of our glorious divine wedding with the Son of the living God. Oh Lord, that we would be with you and to sing your praises for all eternity. Help us, Lord, to do that now. Help us, O oh God, we pray as we, we read your word and we listen and we, we trust the things that you say and we step out and believe by faith the things that you have said. Help us to grow, strengthen our faith, Lord, that we might reflect who you are to the world in which we live. We do pray, Lord, for those who do not know you. And we are praying expectantly, Lord, for you to put bodies in the seats of this church of people today that are singing the curses of God. People whose lives will be changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day, Lord, and seeing how you continue to work in a powerful way to raise the, those that are spiritually dead to give them new life in Jesus Christ. To your glory and your praise. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.